You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. The events that we're going to find in 1 Samuel chapter 7 have taken place 20 years prior to what we're about to read. In chapters 5 and 6, if I can just refresh your memory, uh, Israel was in a bad place. They had turned from the Lord, and they were suffering, they were struggling. And so the sons of Eli, who were wicked sons, the sons of the priest, had this great idea that in order to have victory, they would take the ark of God, the most sacred furniture of the Lord, uh, the furniture that spoke of um, his rulership to Israel, his revelation through his law and his words, and his reconciliation and redemption, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. If they could take this piece of furniture out to the battlefield, it would be their ace in the hole. God then would be, um, he would be obligated, I guess, to fight on their behalf. It was his piece of furniture, and so they thought that if we have this lucky charm with us, that God certainly would deliver us. Well, that's not the case. Because we found last week that God is willing to allow his people to be disappointed in him if it reveals who he truly is. Israel was defeated. The ark was taken. Hophni and Phinehas were slain, and Israel was put to shame. The ark then ends up in the land of the Philistines. It's there for about seven months. And the Philistines, who believed that Dagon, their God, had delivered Yahweh into their hands are extremely disappointed. The next morning when they get up, Dagon is bowing down to Yahweh. So they put him back up in their place. The next day when they get up, not only is he bowing down to Yahweh, his head and his hands are cut off. And again, it shows the foolishness of idolatry. So the Philistines want nothing to do with the God of Israel. He's caused plagues throughout the land. So they send him off by way of two uh, nursing cows that just gave birth, and they, they end up in Israel. And that's what we have now in chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says this, And the men of Kerjeth-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kerjeth-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was 20 years. And so we know the history now. The ark has come back in the land, and now for 20 years it sits there. I want you to understand the situation at this time, because Israel, although they're not at war, they are in bondage. You'll see from this chapter that uh, the nation or the, the people of the, the Philistines are still somehow controlling them, but life has, has sort of just settled in. And they're just living now for these 20 years with the ark there. But it seems like something's missing. Um, they're out of touch with the God of heaven. And now they're living a life for 20 years, a life that God never intended for his people to live. And you're going to find now that they're tired of it. I, I wonder this morning... How many believers, maybe it hasn't been 20 years, maybe it has. Maybe it's been two years, or two months, 
or two weeks. But you know in your heart and life, you're sort of just existing. You're sort of just going through the motions. You know, as a believer, that the life that you're living now is not the life that God intended you to live. And for whatever reason, the last 20 years or two years or two months, you have now come to the point where you are are certainly dissatisfied. Maybe to the point where you are sick of yourself. Because this is where Israel comes. Oh, they've had the ark. It's been there. But the relationship with the God of heaven was not. Look at verse number 2. After he tells us how long the ark was there, it was 20 years, he says, And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years later, they're not thinking about just relief. They're not just thinking about a lucky charm. Now they understand for 20 years the ark has been there. But there's an emptiness. And now they just don't want relief or a lucky charm. They're looking for a real, vibrant relationship with the Lord of heaven. They cry out. They lament to the Lord. This is what they want. And I pray this morning that as we've gathered here, certainly this is what you want. Right? I mean, we're here on a Sunday morning. Maybe some guests and friends are visiting. Thank you for that. I hope you just didn't come for a picnic. The food is really cheap anyways. All right? Just hot dogs. Right? I hope that you're here because you want him. You want to know him. You know that life is more than just this. And this is what the people of Israel are crying out for. They're lamenting now, not after the ark, but after the God of the ark. Which is a huge difference. Now watch verse number 3. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Astroth, which is a, a, another false deity, from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And I have to say something to you. I came across this text, and I know that last week we talked about idolatry. And I tried to convey the idea that idolatry is when we, even as God's people, take something that we love or trust and put it in the place of God. That's what we tried to convey last week. But I was shocked again to find the children of Israel... And to know their history. I mean, when Abraham came out, when God called him out, he put away his idols. But but as we watch the progression there, time and time again, Jacob then says to his children, put away your idols. They come out of Egypt after 400 years and they say, put away your idols. We go through the book of Judges. And time and time again, Israel is worshiping idols. And just last week, not for them, but for us, they see the foolishness of Dagon, who's an idol. And here they want to be right with God, and God says, wait a minute, through Samuel, if you want to seek me with all your heart, then get rid, once again, of your idols. I have to tell you something. You don't read far in Scripture where you come across this idea that idolatry is pervasive among humanity. It's pervasive among us. 
And I want to just park here. I know I talked about last week, but I read something this week that really troubled me. So if I was troubled, I thought you should be troubled as well. Okay? And I want you to see how pervasive idolatry is in our lives and how we don't even think about it. Okay, so I want you to think with me this morning. The question was posed to me through reading last week uh, was simply this. And I, I don't want you to answer out loud, which means don't answer out loud. All right? I want you to be reflective. I want you to really think this morning. Think now, in just the few moments that we have right now, just think now, if you were to lose one thing in your life today, what is the one thing in your life today that if you lost, you would no longer want to go on living? Okay? Just th- I want you to really th- think. And, and search your own heart and your own mind. And be honest with yourself this morning. What is the one thing that if you lost it today, you would no longer want to go on living? I'm not a betting man. But I have a hunch this morning that very few of us, if any, who are being honest, said, Lord, if I lost you, If I lost my faith, I could not imagine going on living. Now, if that's you, God bless you, brother, sister. I want to talk to you afterwards. God bless you. You're doing well. But if you're like me, and my first thought was, her. That's my wife, by the way. It's not just a random lady. That's that's my wife. On the tape, it's like, who's he pointing to? It's my wife. My kids, right? I am not minimizing this morning the love and and an appreciation we ought to have for God's good gifts. That's not the point. The point is this: my heart. If I lost, it, it's it's not him. It's them. And if you're honest this morning, you said in your heart, my spouse. My children, my parents, my boyfriend, my house, my car, my stuff, my motorcycle, my hobby, my position, my security, my nest egg. Let's be honest this morning. If not all of us thought of something this morning other than the Lord of Heaven. I am guilty. And what I'm saying to you is this. It is so pervasive in our lives, we never think about the fact that when we do that, we have committed idolatry. And again, do you want to know how foolish idolatry is? Here's how foolish it is. No matter what you named, someday you're going to lose it all. All of it. See, We live a life that we try to fulfill our life and try to find satisfaction and worth and value in someone or something other than God. And the problem with that is, is it can never truly satisfy you. Oh, they can bring us joy and happiness and it's temporary, but we will lose it all. And so it's imperative this morning that we're always directed back to the worth and the value of our God. 
Because he is the only thing in this universe that is static. He is the only thing that will never change. He is the only thing that is worthy of my heart, my soul, my all. It is him and him alone. We read Psalm 102 this morning. Let me give you another one from Isaiah. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. That's an encouraging thought, Pastor. Thank you so much. And then he says this, But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. I'm telling you something. For all of us this morning, it is time for us to understand the worth and the value of our God, right? The the, the writer of Psalms says it, Isaiah says it, Paul later says in, in Acts chapter 17, in whom we live and move and have our being. And in Colossians chapter 3 he says, Christ who is our life. It's because he understands that the only thing worthy this morning of everything we have is him. It's him. And we must be reminded of that. And so Israel now is longing for God alone. Let's read a couple more verses. Verse number 3, toward the end there. Prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you Uh, unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. Now, now this may not mean anything to you, and I'll mention it again, um, but they're serious about this. So serious that what is life-sustaining to them, water, in in the Middle East, I mean, we take it for granted because we've had so much over the last several weeks, like, stop, right? But in the Middle East, it's like, this is life. And what they're saying is, God, we're serious. We want to know you. Here's our life sustenance, and we're pouring it out before you. Because we want you more than life. That's what they want. And so they poured out and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. It's, it's interesting to note that in the past, uh, Israel, through the sons of Eli, sought victory by taking the ark of God out to the camp. And now Samuel says, wait a minute. That's not how it works. I'm going to take Israel to their God. And this is what happens. And in this story, we find the idea of true repentance. There is a movement of Israel's heart. And so this morning, I'm going to, I'm going to stop at that portion of scripture and spend the rest of the time this morning talking about repentance because in this story we see a beautiful and powerful picture of true repentance and and i want you to know something repentance is important here's how important it is jesus said except ye repent ye shall all likewise perish that's an important word Repentance is important because it's how we get in to the faith. 
You don't get into the faith by being baptized. You don't get into the faith by coming to church or joining a church. You don't get into the faith by being good or just being born into the right family. You get into the faith by repentance and belief. It is me turning from what I thought was right, what I believed to be true, seeing God now for who He is and saying, listen, I am repenting a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior, and now I am believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, that's not where it ends. For the Christian, repentance and faith is a way of life. We do this every day. We must repent and change our mind about the wrong direction and see God for who He is and by faith follow Him. Repentance and faith. It's important. Repentance is not praying a prayer. That's not all that's entailed there. Repentance is not just feeling sorry that you got caught. Right? Paul in Corinthians tells us that there's, an, there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. There is a godly sorrow of repentance. So let me talk to you this morning about true repentance in the time that we have left. Just four thoughts. True repentance. Number one, true repentance begins with a hatred of sin. A hatred of sin. I think the problem for us this morning and in our culture is that all of us, I'm talking to believers now, we don't understand the holiness of God. We sang about it this morning, the song. Do I even know what that means? And the truth is, I'm not sure that we can comprehend what it means when we say that God is holy. That he is separated from his creation. He's not part of it. He's transcendent. He's above it. And that he is completely separated from sin. All sin, every sin, he despises it. He hates it because he is holy, righteous, and just. And I think for us, sometimes there's this disconnect because we don't understand God's holiness, therefore, we don't hate sin like we ought to. We just don't. The problem is, all of us tend to think that we're basically good. We do. I think, yeah, I'm the nicest guy I know. I'm good. Right? And I'm not saying this morning that you can't do good things because we can. We do good things. But sometimes we think that my goodness somehow is going to impress God and my goodness, my good works, my good deeds will somehow merit God's favor and he will certainly be impressed with me. Here's a problem with that. Because he is holy, there is nothing I can do about good works or with, within good works that will ever merit his favor. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 64, he tells me that my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. George Whitfield used to call it the, the evil of our righteousness. God is holy. And so if I'm going to repent this morning, I must see him for who he is, and I must hate sin. Now here's the truth of the matter. Most of us hate sin... But it's everyone else's sin. Oh, I hate their sin. I hate her sin. I hate when they sin like that. And then what we do is we categorize those sins. We say things like, yeah, you know, he is an, an adulterer. Ugh. That woman is a fornicator. What a great word that is to use about. She's a fornicator. They're homosexual. He's a pervert. 
And somehow, some way, that makes us feel so much better about our sin. Let me help you with something this morning. Your abrasive, critical spirit this morning is wicked and sinful. Your cynical, overbearing, negative disposition is ungodly. Your arrogant, unteachable, prideful spirit is disgusting in the face of God. Your self-love, always making it about you and you're the center of the universe, it's sinful, it's wicked, it's ungodly. Our total disregard for the fruit of the Spirit in our life, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, our disregard like that doesn't matter to God is an affront to the holy God. And true repentance starts when you and I quit looking around at everyone else's sin and saying to God, search me, try me, know me, peel it back, Lord. I am a sinner and I hate where I find myself this morning. You say, Pastor, you're trying to throw a guilt trip on us. Can I, can I tell you something? Guilt sometimes is a terrible thing. It's a wicked thing at times. But there are times in our life when it is good if it leads us past the sorrow to the joy of true repentance. We must repent. Repent. And it's not until there's a healthy dissatisfaction with our personal level of goodness that we can ever begin to heal like God wants. We can never be right with Him. There must be a hatred of sin. Number two, there must be a desire to offer confession. Confession. Verse number six of our text, they said, we have sinned against the Lord. And so often we say, okay, God, I hate my sin, and we leave it. They says, no, the next step is, I must confess it. Years ago, and I say years, I'm talking the 1700s, 1730 to 1770, the first great awakening, a time of spiritual renewal, especially in the American colonies. And during that time, there's a man named Jonathan Edwards, preached great messages, but during that time, he had a, a prayer meeting of 800 men. 800 men would come together to pray. Not a sermon, not a study, to pray. And, and one day, when he was preparing for this prayer meeting, he received a letter from a woman who said, Can you please pray for my husband? He is difficult, arrogant, and unloving. And, and, and Jonathan Edwards looked at the paper, went before those 800 men, and then he had this thought. It might be that that man is within the meeting this morning. We should give him an opportunity to repent and make it right. And so Edwards read the letter and said, I wonder this morning if that brother is here, and if he's here, if he would be willing to raise his hand so we can pray for him. And when he said that, 300 men raised their hands. Right? God, I hate my sin. I am willing to confess it. And not just the obvious sin. Everybody sees. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Oh, did you see me in the drive-thru at Tim Hortons? Yeah, sorry. You cut in front of me. Sorry, I respond. I'm sorry. No. The sin's within that no one sees. I say, God, I hate it. I am confessing and repenting. First to him and then to others. You want to know if your confession is real? Well, if you sin against someone to make it right with God, the next step is to make it right with them. Confess to your wife, to your children. 
Oh, pastor, if I did that, they would know I wasn't perfect. They know that already. You know that. Why be a hypocrite? Confess to that believer. We must get to the point where it's, it's, it's more about my relationship with God than my reputation with men. And when God breaks me and shows me my sin, guess what happens? We say out loud, I've sinned, and I don't care what you think. I want to be right with God and right with you. We openly and willingly confess. Number three, true repentance produces new obedience. It produces new obedience. They went to Mizpah, they fasted, they poured out their water. There was a new obedience involved. When I repent, if there is no intention whatsoever to change my way of life, it is not repentance. Because when I truly repent and confess, then I want new obedience Lord, I want you, I need you, and you realize that this morning, and so God, I need that I'm repenting, and then you go home, turn on the TV, forget about the message, don't pick up your Bible, never pray next week, listen to me, you have not, in the truest sense of the word, repented. It's the same for salvation. The the guy or girl who comes forward and prays a prayer, says, Lord, save me, I don't want to go to hell, save me. And there's never any change in their life, that is not repentance. A faith that doesn't Change you is a faith that never saved you. Because when I repent, I say, God, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm going towards you, I'm confessing, and by your grace, there's going to be new obedience in my life. I'm listening and responding. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. And then finally this morning, true repentance not only entails this hatred of sin and a confession and a new obedience, but afterwards there is a new relationship. After 20 years, they said, Lord, we want to know you. We're lamenting after you. We want to live like we were intended to live. And when I truly repent, it moves me to the area of a new relationship with God. A new relationship. Um, This has happened for all of our children. Um, When they were younger and I'd come home from work, Kim would say, hey, listen, so-and-so, and and you can fill in the name, A.J., Greg, David, so-and-so, man, it was quite the day today. They need to be disciplined. And and so as a dad, as a father, and it was laid on her, you take care of it, sweetheart. It's my response. Come home and say, okay, listen, sit down there, Junior. What's going on? Okay, that's problematic. That's sinful. Let's deal with this. We discipline them. Um, And we ought to. We're supposed to. You, You can't neglect the Bible. You can't pick and choose what you want. Listen to the words of God. Do what it says. And so we discipline them, and then I would pray with them and tell them I love them and, and work on restoring now that relationship. That's what it ought to look like, always. And if it doesn't look like that, you're doing something terribly wrong. And almost every time, almost every time afterwards, I'd be out in the garage, I'd be on the front lawn, And the boy that I disciplined would come up and say, Dad? Yeah? You need help? Is there something I can do? They wanted to know that that relationship is okay again. And that's what what flows from a a heart that has experienced grace. And that's what happens when we come back to God and say, Lord, forgive me, I don't want these idols, I don't want this in my life, I want more, I want you and you alone. 
and we confess and there's new obedience and now it moves us into the area of a new relationship with him. There is freedom there, my friend. Freedom. When I confess my sin to God and I'm open and honest with him, guess what? I don't care what you think about me. It doesn't matter. God who knows me and forgave me and loves me, we, we took care of that and I'm trying to take care of it with you. And so there's nothing to hide anymore. There's no facade. I don't need that. There is great freedom there. I can be transparent. I don't have to pretend anymore. Yeah, I blew that. God forgave me and I'm trying to... It's transparency. It's good. There is freedom and then there is fullness of joy. You know as well as I do, there is nothing like pillowing your head at night and knowing there is nothing between my soul and the Savior. Nothing. There, there is no greater experience on this planet to know that no matter what the day brought, no matter where I find myself, no matter what struggles I'm facing, when I pillow my head and close my eyes and say, God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we're okay. And I thank you that there's nothing between my soul and the Savior. My friend, I don't know how long you've been sitting around the ark. Maybe 20 years. Maybe two, maybe two months. But I pray this morning that we, we get our eyes opened like Israel and we say, God, you, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. I, there's these idols in my heart and life. I'm living a life not as you designed. I feel it. It weighs on me. God, I don't want this. I am lamenting after you. I am going to repent, hate my sin, confess it to you and others, seek new obedience. And God, I want this refreshing new relationship with you. And when his mercy flows, man, it is good. Let me just read a portion of scripture. Because I said before, guilt can be a bad thing, but when guilt brings us to a place of true repentance, it's a wonderful thing. Just listen to Romans 8, a great portion of Scripture as we close this morning. He says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep before the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friend, what else is there other than that? Nothing. Nothing. And when I repent and seek his face, that is the joy that I experience as a believer. And so listen to me this morning. Wake up. Your idols, my idols, they are all passing away. The only thing of substance, the true reality, is the God we serve. And I must be honest and open with him. I must repent. I must confess. I must walk in obedience. And when I do, this new relationship of joy and freedom will flow into my life. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.